Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Brand sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Brand sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. We have a great chat for you today with two of the women who are part of the Muslim Sisters of Era. It's a grassroots, non-profit, all-female organisation established back in July 2010 to promote immigration and social inclusion, as well as providing vital services for the community to support the most vulnerable and to facilitate integration, build bridges and break stereotypes. They're really fantastic and so I'll be bringing you that in a moment but in the meantime just wanted to remind you that we've another big night in coming up on Saturday with the wonderful soul singer Tolu McKay so I'm looking forward to seeing you all there and tickets are still available on irishtimes.com forward slash big night in if you want to be part of it and even if you just buy a ticket now you'll still get access to all our other events that we've run in the last while. Now back to the Muslim Sisters of Era. Their longest and ongoing project is the feeding of the homeless outside the GPO every Friday for the past three years. But they also have weekly Friday homeless soup runs and provide support, food and company and solace to hundreds of people every week. They've done it through three lockdowns now and they're in their second pandemic, Ramadan, and they're still going strong. We spoke to the founder of Muslim Sisters of Era, a great woman called Lorraine O'Connor, who converted from Catholicism to the Muslim religion in 2005 and who set up that community of sisters because she wanted to foster a sense of sisterhood between Muslim women in Ireland who were experiencing difficulty fitting in and trying to fight negative stereotypes of Muslims. And I also spoke to Sabina Saeed, a woman who came to Ireland from Pakistan in 2000 and who absolutely loves being part of the Muslim Sisters of Era, which she says is like another family. These women are heroes, really great people. And I'm delighted to bring you our conversation. I began by asking Lorraine what the Muslim Sisters of Era are all about. Okay, the Muslim Sisters of Era were a registered charity and we were founded in 2010 and we are made up of women from all over the world. Basically, um, our members are with Pakistani, with Indian, Australian, Mauritius, Turkish, English, Irish, uh, South African. Oh, my God, I know I'm forgetting someone. Czechoslovakia, Ukraine. Oh, my God, they're, they're from all over the world. I think we've, we've a spot in every part of the world. And um, the Muslim Sisters of Era was predominantly in the beginning, it was formed to help Muslim women break the stereotype. And that is really, really rampant in 2010 and before that. And I suppose um, the initial idea was I became a Muslim in 2005. And when I put on my headscarf, I was horrified with um, the kind of pockets of Islamophobia that was there and the racial um, attacks on me and my family. And um, I suppose the biggest thing for me was my identity was stripped from me. I was no more Lorraine from Kulak. I was an immigrant within my own country. And that was a killer for me. It was like literally being stripped of the very, you know, country and identity of whom I 
parents brought me up as, and I came from a very patriotic family, like my great grandfather would have fought in the Easter Rising and so forth and so on. And then all of a sudden to put, just put a piece of scarf on your head and all that's been stripped from you. And I just couldn't, couldn't cope with that. So I suppose between 2005 and 2010, I kind of educated myself, not only Islamically, but within the wider community and within, um, you know, instance of racial incidents and um, how to come active within the, the not the non-Muslim community has a Muslim woman. So I would have got all that experience in, in the five years and then went back and did feminism in um, UCD and women's studies. And then in 2010, it was like, okay, I'm ready. Let's do something for these women. And, and for myself, especially. And for my daughters and four daughters as well. So it's really interesting because the public perception of you now is you're at the GPO helping homeless people, giving out food. But I love the idea that initially it was this sisterhood that was set up to help other Muslim women cope with negative experiences they were having. So what did you do in order to get to that? Well, initially, it was it was a bit difficult in the beginning because, you know, even though um we did this, especially for Muslim women within our own community. Within our, commu- our own community had different pockets of ethnicity. So you would have Pakistani sisters staying with Pakistani sisters, Bangladeshi sisters staying, uh, Arab, you know, all staying in their own kind of pockets. And I could see that. And I was saying, if you, if you want to break stereotype, and we all kind of need maybe one from each one of them different um, countries, do you know what I mean? Even though there were Muslim women, we all connected because we we're Muslim, but yet there was all different cultures there, culinary cultures. So it was, you know, getting them to trust me was a difficult one. But um, initially we started with doing little courses called Time Out For Me, which would bring the, say, 10 women around the table and ask them about their feelings and what they feel about living in this country and, you know, what do they miss most in home. And then, you know, women, when they're around the table with a cup of tea, the conversation just flows. And as it was flowing, ideas were coming and that was the birth of Muslim Sisters of Era. We then started little classes, sewing classes, embroidery classes, and building their self-esteem up to, to let them hear their own voices. And yes, I have a voice. I don't need to stay hidden in my new homeland. I need to become active. And this is the way that I can become active. The kind of found that has a channel, a way forward for them. So I suppose it was nurturing that and watching it and finding the voices within them and the power. Because look, a woman, you know, she's got beautiful strength within her. So, yeah. It's a really interesting evolution. So tell me then how it came to be what we see it as now, and particularly in the pandemic, how you've been helping people. Um, What's the work you do as Muslim Sisters of Era and how have you worked towards reducing those stereotypes and reducing that hostility that that people might have felt at the beginning? Um, What's been the impact? Because it's a wonderful news story. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the stereotyping, it, you know, I, I, I say lately, we're, we've climbed about, I'd say, 99 steps. That's how close we are, that people's perceptions now is completely changing, the mindset is changing. I suppose Muslim sisters are very transparent in the work that we do and very consistent in the work that we do. And I suppose over years that it has, it, I'm not supposing, it actually has gained tremendous uh, trust within the Irish society. And um, the work that we've been doing down at the GPO for six years, that speaks volumes in itself. It's consistent. 
And one of the things um, that I'm very firm on in the rule down at the GPO is religion doesn't come into it down there. It's about empathy and trust. And it's about caring and giving and forming friendship, not also with each other, but with our homeless service users and that they can come to us when they need that trust. And also being a registered charity, having the trust and transparency to the people who are donating to us as well. So, yeah, after six years and then... I don't think a lot of people know, actually, you don't have to be a Muslim woman to volunteer down there. It's about women together. So um, we actually have a good few non-Muslim women down there and they love it. And they love the sense of belonging. You know, we've got really, really strong women down there, um, as I said, who are not Muslim and they just love the unity of, of the women together. So this is when religion doesn't really come into it. It's about sisterhood and sisterhood comes between me and you. But it is the Muslim sisters of error, obviously, who are the head bank at a whole lot of it there. Um, we also do a lot of different work to do with stereotyping, integration, you know, diversity. There's a lot of, I know we're seeing very much in the public eye as the homeless project, but that literally is just one of about 30 projects that we're doing. During Ramadan at the moment, we have um, a campaign going on. I get a call each year from a hostel and um there's some Muslim men in that hostel and they don't have, they have access to break their fast, but they don't have access when the fast starts in the Suhur, which is early. Lorraine, just remind me about Ramadan in case people are listening and aren't familiar with that part of your religion. Okay, so Ramadan is the holy month of fasting. Um, it started, we're in day three. It started three days ago. So we're fasting from dawn to dusk. And it's abstaining from food and water. I'm going to let my colleague, um, she'll go further into that for you. And because I kind of want to touch, go back really quick um, to these brothers in the hostel. And they are abstaining, you know, they're fasting as well. And the fast is 16 hours now, 16 and a little bit over a day. And you're abstaining from food and water, okay? And I mean, Ramadan is a beautiful time of the year for every Muslim. You know, it's a time to spiritual connect. It's a time to give in charity. It's a time for families to be together. And it's a time to kind of re reconnect, I always say, with your creator. But imagine being in a homeless situation, trying to do that as well in a hostel. So we found that the support that, you know, we could give them is that we give them bags like rucksacks and in them is all ambience food for when their, start, their fast starts at dawn. Do you know what I mean? It's coming in the fast end. So they have to abstain from food and water. And when you're in a hostel, you don't have, you know, facilities to be able to go. You know, most of them kitchens are shut at that hour of the morning. They may be able to make a cup of tea or water, but we fill them bags full of stuff for them. You'd have a cup of soups, you'd have cereal bars, you'd have crisps, peanuts, fruit, anything you could think of full to the brim. And what the girls do every week, right during Ramadan, they're filled up. Every week again, every Tuesday, they're delivered again to that hostel. And I delivered 21 of them yesterday. And the men like who take them, I don't want, like, I don't ask about these guys. I don't ask their names. I don't ask nothing. It's all done confidential. I just deliver the stuff. And the guys from the hostel come out and they're going, oh my God, the fellas are waiting on these. They're really delighted to know that there's that kind of connection and support for them as well in this time of year. That's great. I'm going to come to Sabina in a minute. But before I do, I just want you to look back six years to the first night when you went out to the GPO in your headscarf standing there. And I presume at that stage it was mostly Muslim women and there weren't very many non-Muslims in your group. What kind of reception did you get then versus how you're embraced now? And did people see the value of what you were doing at the beginning? 
Well, I, there was three of us, three of us at that stage with a pot of soup and a couple of biscuits and a flask of tea. And it was hostile. It was it was really hostile. There was a lot of, um, uh, who do you think you are? Get lost, go back to your own country, all of this. But I suppose the added bonus is that I am originally from Kula. So I was able to go, you know, what, what are you saying? Who are you talking to, you know, and actually connect with them. And they'd be like, oh, you're from Dublin. Where are you from? And then a, a lot of Northside homeless that you're able to connect with. And we'd stack on down memory lane and talking. Oh, I used to hang there. I used to hang there. Oh, my God, you're a Muslim and you used to be in Ballybuck in the 80s. And I'd be going, yeah, I wasn't always Muslim. So you had a connection, you know what I mean? And there was hostile situation. But I suppose when you have some kind of, of vision and determination to kind of break the stereotype and and the girls, the sisters did trust me and kind of, I didn't serve, I would stay out at the table, you know, moving around in between them and chatting to them and all the, I, I always kind of felt safe. And there has been a few breakouts over the years, but people are, are I always say, the reason that we, the Muslim sisters of Era, connect with the homeless because the homeless are stereotyped for being homeless and having addictions. And we're stereotyped for being Muslim women. So we connect and we understand and, and we hope to be able to do something better for them in the future. Sabina, tell me your story, because you came to Ireland in 2000 and I've loved hearing from your fearless leader and I can see how inspiring it must be to work with Lorraine. But how did you come to Ireland and to the Muslim sisters of Era? Uh, well, thank you very much for having us, Roisin, first of all. And um, I came to Ireland in 2000 after getting married to my husband. And uh, since then, I've been living here. I've lived here more than I have lived in my own country um, back home. Uh, so like this is my not my second home now. It's my first home. And um, uh, well, I met Lorraine in 2013. And since then, it's just an ongoing relationship. And it's like, Lorraine is just like my elder sister. We are just like families and we can't live without each other kind of a thing. Um, and it's been a, an amazing journey being a part of Muslim Sisters of Era for me and for my family as well, because it's it's like you're not just involved yourself. It's your kids, your husband, your family. The whole entire gang is involved in Muslim Sisters of Era in one way or the other. Sabina, when you came to Ireland in 2000, you met Lorraine then in 2013, but she spoke earlier about that sense of self-esteem and trying to fit into a new country, especially fitting in while wearing uh, the hijab, which is a visible signifier that you're sort of other in inverted commas or that you're somehow different. Can you cast your mind back to what that felt like? And I suppose look at how it's changed since you became involved with the sisters. Well, uh, when I came to Ireland, we were in Tipperary, County Tipperary. We weren't in Dublin at that time. And um, due to the nature of my husband's job, we had to move around a lot. So I have been in um, Tipperary, I've been in County Clare, I've been in Sligo and all around like uh, Ireland kind of a thing. Um, so it was really different at that time because you would hardly see anybody in Hetzkar because there weren't many people here. There weren't many migrants here at that time. And it was amazing. We used to love to come to Dublin to get our halal groceries done over here and see a couple of them hanging out um, in the street uh, with the scarf on. And you would just connect to them immediately without knowing uh, that who they are. And uh, then we moved to Dublin in 2013, and uh, that is when um, I met Lorraine. And it, it has been an amazing journey. Like uh, you could see so many people now accepting the hijab and the the, the head veil that we are wearing. Um, like I had a couple of incidents when I was in Sligo, people asking me again to go back to my own country and who the hell did I think I am and stuff like that, you know. And uh, once you open your mouth, as Lorraine said, the, the, the 
the main thing I think so they target you is because they think that they, you don't know how to answer them back or you wouldn't be able to speak English or you wouldn't be able to talk to them. But once they hear you can and you're capable of talking, they'll just step back as well sometimes. So um, it, it's a big difference from 2000 and now to 2021 um, in regards to the hijab and the acceptance of it. And Sabina, what Lorraine just said there is important to the work that you guys do and the fact that, you know, we stereotype homeless people because we have judgments on people who find themselves in that situation when really anybody can find themselves in that situation. It happens to a lot of people. Uh, and then because you wear a headscarf, there are stereotypes and sort of perceptions of oppression about those things as well. Does that help to connect with homeless people? Yeah, we can definitely connect to them, as Lorraine said, um, that we can we can feel the way that they are stereotyping. Because like this was like, to be honest, um, thinking of before 2013, before joining Muslim Sisters of Era and being out there on the GPO with the homeless, we would be scared crossing the homeless when we are walking on the streets ourselves like that. OK, oh, oh, my God, they are druggies or they are addicted and stuff like that. Um, uh, and that thing for us as well, for myself particularly, I would say it. It broke the thing when we started to go outside the GPO and we realized that people out there are just normal people like us, like no matter what they are, if they are homeless, so what kind of a thing. But not all of them are on drugs and not all of them are junkies and stuff like that. So it was an immediate connection out there on the GPO when we met a few guys and they're so respectful and they're so nice and humble to you with your headscarf um, uh, on. And like uh, that happened to us a couple of times uh, after starting the the Supran, that when we went out to the city center and uh, uh, and you would hear a voice from the corner, hey, hi, thank you for serving us on Fridays and stuff like that, you know. And like my husband works with the guards. Um, he is a doctor, right? And once he was in one of the guard station in Store Street, I think so, and uh, he was calling to see somebody. And when he went in and the guys, he, he was assessing him and the guy goes like, oh, thank you for serving us out outside the GPO on Fridays, you know, like kind of a thing. And I was like, my husband hardly goes to the GPO. He would just drive me once or twice, like maybe if needed. Um, but I think so with the beard and with his um, complexion and stuff like that, they realized that, OK, he is somebody from there. So it, it, it was an amazing thing to hear. And he was so delighted to come back to me and say, like, the guy said to me this, this today in the station. And I was like, OK, that's good that we recognized by the by the people out there. So, Lorraine, I want to bring you back in here because it's over a year since the pandemic started. So what way did your work have to change because of the pandemic? And did, was there ever a moment when you thought, right, that's it, we won't be able to do it anymore? Well, initially when the pandemic started, we had a um, crew over from Indonesia who heard about us through the web and um, they were called uh, something travellers. And anyway, they were a camera crew and we were coming up to our 10th anniversary and they were amazed with the work that Muslim Sisters of Era did. So they sent a camera crew over from Indonesia to follow us and um, document it and then put it out over the whole of the Indonesian broadcasting. And the, the company they were from was equivalent to like RTA. It was their main um, Indonesian film crew station. So they came over. And um, I'll always remember it was the, we were very busy preparing our 10th anniversary, which we had on, the, I think it was the 9th or 10th of March. And we had a huge 160 people attending it, loads of different speakers at it. And it was a huge night of celebration. And it was like, I'll never forget it. It was the most um, 
amazing night ever all the achievements and all the 10 years and all the struggle and like we had with people there from the department of education because on on a different note we're actually in the curriculum in two school books at the moment junior cert and leaving cert and uh two writers from the these books spoke on that night and it was amazing but there was a little cloud a tiny little cloud called COVID was starting to come in then. And where people were coming in, they were going to shake hands. And I'm like, like a few of us were going, oh, should we shake? It was only coming out about wash your hands and shaking hands. And we were all laughing and joking about it. But I remember then it was the next day that um, Patrick's Day was cancelled. And then it was the week after we went into complete lockdown. And then the film crew got a call called me that they got a call from Indonesia and they were took out of Ireland immediately to come home. So the realistic started to pop in. Okay, what the hell? What's going on? You know, this is something coming that we don't know really much about. And then I, I suppose in, in December, I was in um, Saudi on the pilgrimage and I was watching the television in Saudi looking at this strange thing in China and people dying and and of course, I love that that's them like eating this and eating that. And, you know, this will never come here and never thinking in a million years. So when the crew initially got pulled out and then we we're going in lockdown, I remember sitting here thinking, how, how are we going to do? What are we going to do? And that's the end of us. We, we're not going to be able to meet. We're not going to be able to do A, B, C and D. So for we couldn't go out. You know, the, the country was in fear. It was in complete fear. And you were afraid to go down to the GPO. You were afraid to go outside your door. But then I start getting calls on my phone because every week I do collections from different uh, Tesco's. And I start getting calls. Are you coming to collect the food? Are you coming to collect the food? I'm like, no. And then I was like, you know, you can't. You have to go and collect. You can't. The thoughts of that food being thrown out was killing me. So I, I had to do something else. So... Came up with an idea. The whole of the organisation of Muslim Sisters of Era came to Crumlin into my home and we start collecting the food and then I start making hampers and we put out a call in our Facebook that if any families are in need, let us know. Oh God, we were inundated. We were giving out about 60 hampers a week. And I know there was a documentary done during Ramadan last year, Ramadan Diaries, where they came and they filmed my home and you'd see my kitchen, my sitting room was, was full. But what each volunteer decided to do and how we were able to keep a distance with each other was myself and my husband, because everyone was working from home and my teenage children who were in college then, we would collect the food. We would bring it to my home. All the family would sort out the hampers and then the crew would come to the door. And in my garden, you'd have about 30 hampers waiting and there'd be pick up. Each person would know where to go. But you would be coming in in like about 10 face masks and about 20 pairs of gloves. And, you know, we shut down from the soup run from the end of March till the beginning of June. And by the beginning of June, the numbers were dropping. And I was like, you know what? We need to go back out. We didn't think that we would be needed. Now, pre-COVID, through our data, we fed 250 people a week. Right now, we're shooting up. The, the data last week was 570 was the highest a week. And like, we were horrified of the poverty. And I still say this all the time. There's a new poverty. It's called COVID poverty. Yeah. And it's had a ripple effect on so many families. It's not just homeless we're feeding down there on Friday night. It's people that have homes but can't manage from week to week. You've got children queuing up. It's it's like, it's it's so hard. Now, in the peak, 
in December, when it hit 9,000 cases a day, we shut down for two weeks and only two weeks. And the reason why we shut down for two weeks was um, some of our volunteers from being out there. And this is what really wrecks my head. And excuse my French is we are a registered charity. We're a registered HSC super, but we're not recognised as frontline workers. And in December, then, our team start going like skittles catching COVID, including my home. Five of them in here have it. And I was like so frustrated with our government. We're facilitating something that you are not doing. We're feeding 570 people a week. Multiply that by month. You're up in 2,200 a month. Yet you're not recognising a registered HSC super and a registered charity as frontline workers who are crying out for the vaccine, you know, to be able to continue. And then through the cold, we were out two or three nights a week out on outreach work. So the pandemic has brought us from A to Z in the amount of people crying out from help. We're still doing hampers. We're still doing um, the soup run every week. We're still feeding 570 people a week. We still try and do our outreach work. And it's still not enough. Sometimes I know we're on burnout complete burnout because we're exhausted on top of that we do a lot of work for advocacy you know working with muslim women within the community that need help i do a lot of different support court support all of that as i said it's not just about the homeless so the amount of work that we're doing at the moment and we've so many campaigns going on now you know there's a tie drive going on we've um the homeless feeding the uh, sorry the men in the hostel uh, every week We've got, a, you know, we just delivered the day before yesterday 600 Easter eggs to direct provision centres and a whole load of new clothes. So there's so much going on. We're, we're literally, you know, in work, but we're blessed. It's incredible. Sabina, tell me about the sense of sisterhood, because I suppose originally Lorraine brought these women together to allow people to feel a sense of community, to feel more at home in a place when they've come from so many different countries, uh, as Lorraine mentioned at the very beginning. So tell me what it's like and what that sisterhood has meant to you and your family. The sense of sisterhood is amazing in Muslim Sisters of Era, and the name says it like itself, like it's Muslim Sisters of Era, right? And um, we are sisters, not by blood, but by heart and soul. And uh, um, I think so. Um, um, I can say on behalf of everybody over here that we, it's a love-hate relationship. We can't live with each other and we can't live without each other um, because sometimes we drive each other nuts. And sometimes it's that you don't hear their voice or if you don't hear from them, it's like, OK, what's going on? What's happening? Like Lorraine said that she was gone in December for the pilgrimage and um uh, it was so calm and so quiet, and we started to literally miss her at that stage. That okay, what's going on? She needs to come back. So that that is the sense of sisterhood over here in Muslim Sisters of Era. That um, uh, it's amazing. It's like uh, I'm. I have two sisters. My my blood sisters. I have two sisters. But to be honest, I don't miss them as much because I have so many sisters here, and they feel jealous for that because like I'm so busy here with them all the time. Lorraine, I just want to come back to you because I'm curious about this. You became a Muslim in 2005, but you were married well before that to your Muslim husband. And I'd love to know about your journey towards being a Muslim because you were obviously a long time and a non-Muslim and you didn't convert. So what attracted you to it? In 1986, um, it was the first time I ever went to a halakha, which is an Islamic gathering. And um, I was then married to, that's my ex-husband. I'm remarried again to a beautiful man. And But in 1986, as I said, I went to my first kind of, like a Bible study. So it was a Quran study. 
And um, I knew I, did, I, I didn't have any kids then. I was just recently married to him. Um, no plans of having any kids, but um, I knew that if he had made it very clear to me that if we ever had children, that they would have to be Muslim. And I was like, I really didn't know much about this religion because I was very strong in my own sense, in my own faith. I had been to Lourdes. I had been on a very spiritual journey, even though I was a little bit of a, you know, as my mom to say, a little bit of a Tasmanian devil to rare as a kid. I always had that kind of faith and I got that from my mother. My mother was very strong in her religion. And um, I was a little bit worried of, of the religion Islam, because coming growing up in the 80s, Islam was very much connected to the Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, the Beirut bombings, the, the, you know, guys that were captured out there, the beheading, terrorism, it spelt everything. And on top of that, my first husband was from Libya. And then it was the time of the Lockerbie bombings, the uh, Reagan campaign, the whole lot of that, when Reagan, uh, President Reagan bombed Libya. So there was a whole load of, of dark clouds. And it, my parents, I was a young girl, I was 20 years of age, and my parents were like, oh, my God, what's she doing now? Do you know what I mean? Bringing um, a guy from Libya in, in the early, late 80s um, down the north side of Dublin was like, well, she's really done it now. Do you know what I mean? So I needed to kind of find myself what I was going into religious-wise. So I started, like, going into these circles, attending these, because I knew that he had said, and he was, I was in love. I was so infatuated that soon went anyway evacuated with this and you know so kind of I had to see what the children were going to be brought up of my future children and I wanted to know that for how could I play a part in bringing them up so the first thing that I noticed was the similarities of the religion they're very similar and the beliefs are very similar and I was like wow so I kind of start reading the Quran and studying a little bit um did I want to become a Muslim then no was I very much still within my own faith? Yes. Had I got a really good connection between Jesus and me? Yes. Was I praying to Jesus all the time? Praying to Mary, praying to the dead, praying to the saints, praying to everyone? Yes. Was I like kneeling down at night at the end of my bed doing novenas to Padre Pio? Yes. So could I break that? No. I couldn't let go of that. It's kind of letting go of everything you've been read in. So that journey for me started in 1986 to 2005 and I did never want to become a Muslim for a man if I was going to become a Muslim I had to be for me I had to be that I really believed in this religion and that my spiritual journey would eventually bring me to Islam and it did in 2005 you know the more I read the more I studied the more it made sense to me and I suppose letting go of what I believed then to see for me now, I'm only talking about the truth and detaching that terrorism from religion. So it was looking into that, that this is not Islam. This is not what it's about. I mean, when you read in the Quran, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to kill, an, to kill an innocent life is like killing the whole of humanity. So, I mean, it was that beauty and that connection that brought me, you know, eventually 19 years and divorced from their father and a new path for me. It brought me on a new journey, and it's a journey that it has been amazing. It has had its 
ups and downs. I've, I've questioned my journey a lot of times. I've questioned, did I do the right thing? But every time I question that, and we'll always question our life, I see validation of, yes, you did the right thing and, and, and complete inner peace. Lorraine, you've mentioned uh, Saudi Arabia, and I suppose I wanted to ask you about the oppression of Muslim women, because when I think of countries like Saudi Arabia, I sometimes think uh, where there is a lot of um, oppression of women and, you know, things like the male guardianship rules where women aren't allowed to make key decisions in their lives. They have to get permission from a brother or a father or Things like in Saudi Arabia, for example, women weren't allowed to drive until two years ago. So I'd love to know your thoughts on that. And what do you say to people when they equate the two things, Muslim women with oppression? I think what's after happening is, and I would have, you know, again, growing up in the 80s, I would have been one of them people saying that Muslim women are very oppressed. But I think the more you study Islam and see the rights of Muslim women, that isn't portrayed enough in the media. Muslim women have an awful lot of rights. And I think that perception of of Western day um, look on Muslim women, the media has a big part to play in that because they'll just portray that Muslim women are in a very male dominant religion. And they're actually not. Um, going back to Saudi, I, I was a little bit, it was my first time to go to Saudi. It was my, I'm a Muslim 16 years. It was my first time to go on the pilgrimage last year. I was very nervous going out. I was like, oh my God, can I walk on my own to my husband? And my husband was right there. And he was like, well, he said, you wouldn't really walk out on your own there. But he hadn't been there in five years either. And then I was talking to another friend of mine and she was going, everything has changed now. Yeah, you can. And I'm like, oh my God. So I had a lot of fears going out myself. Saudi was absolutely beautiful. Yes, I went for walks by myself. Yes, I went into restaurants by myself and everybody is well respected. The thing that I loved about it, when you were going in a queue and a woman walked in, a man would step back for you to go in front of him on the queue. The ethics of respect there. She's a lady coming in, move, you know, don't be on top of her, move back from her. Um, I did find one time when I was in KFC, there was a guy nearly up my back, do you know what I mean? And I was like, I was like, having to remember that I was in Saudi and not in Kulak anymore, and kind of wanted to tell him what to do. And um, immediately, my husband wasn't with me, my two daughters were with me, and immediately um, the man from behind the counter in KFC started giving out to him in Arabic, saying, have some respect, move back, this is a woman here, they're in front of you. And I was like, well, we need this down at Supermax and O'Connell Street. We definitely need this. So it was absolutely beautiful and so many women serving. But Lorraine, at the same time, you wouldn't minimise the fact that there are many Muslim women all over the world who are oppressed and who are in terrible situations. No, I wouldn't minimise that fact. But what I will come back to with is there's women in every parts of the world. There's Dublin women today who are oppressed by men. I've, I've done worked with the domestic violence service for years and maintained the phone. One in every fifth house, a woman is being abused by her husband. So on the whole, yes, there are women oppressed. Are there Muslim women oppressed? Yes. Are there Western women oppressed? Yes. So, yes, women all on a whole all over the world are being subject to oppression. Yeah. And Isabel, you you have that insight as well because you're gender studies. So I think you're really well placed to kind of see all that nuance. I'd like to bring Sabina in here because, Sabina, again, wearing the hijab around Dublin, now where you live, um, I'm sure you and your daughters get, you know, uh, hassle about that. What, what's your experience been on a daily basis and has it changed? Is it a little bit better now? 
Um, yeah, it has been a little bit better and it's had been much, much better. It, it has been much more easier now to wear the hijab around because you see many of them and then it's more acceptability. Like my daughters, they both go to secondary school and there are so many girls who are Muslim there and they're wearing hijab and there's no problem in that. And the schools are really accommodating with that thing as well, even providing them uh, with a room for prayers and stuff like that. So um, it is not like that, that uh, people think that Muslim women are oppressed. It, it's not at all the case. I would say that we, we, if we get a chance, we oppress our husbands ourselves. So, uh, <laughs> well, we, we on the women's podcast, we don't condone any oppression of men or women. So I can't condone that. Yeah, Sabina. like we don't take any sort of oppression from anybody, and it's a really, really big misconception of uh, being oppressed in um, Islam or in religion. I think so. The problem over here, what is Roshin, is that people mix up religion and culture. Religion and culture are two different things, and there is no oppression in religion to anybody. So, um, yeah, and wearing hijab, is ha it has been a piece of cake now. Thankfully, I have never, ever experienced anything um, regarding my hijab um, in Dublin, especially uh, up till now. That's wonderful to hear. Um, I just want to hear from both of you, and maybe because I'm with you, Sabina. Where do you see the Muslim Sisters of Era going? Like it's a second Ramadan now that you've been in this lockdown situation. Uh, it's very difficult, but you've carried on. Uh, where will this work go from here? I think this work is going to go um, far away and beyond. And um, we are planning to see Lorraine in the doll in near future as well, um, because that's our next objective. <laughs> and uh, what about Inora Sanuktron? I think she could do a good job there oh, as well. She could do a better job there as well. Yeah, yeah. No doubt about that. And uh, Muslim Sisters of Era is not going to stop anywhere any soon. So we are, we have the aim of um, keep on going kind of a thing, you know. Great. And Lorraine, final word to you as the fearless leader of this whole amazing enterprise. What's, what are your plans? I, you know, I always say the world is our oyster. But one thing I, I, I kind of pull myself back in, um, we always kind of discipline ourselves the same. We plan and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the best of planners. So that, you know, a firm believer that whatever we plan, if, if it works for us, it's a blessing. If it doesn't work for us, it wasn't meant to be. So far, we've had a lot of blessings. I would like to expand, get bigger and um reach out to more people and be able to help more people. As I said, race, colour and creed doesn't come into this when we're helping people. And also to help our, our Muslim women within, within the community to, you know, not be afraid. Ireland is your home and Ireland is beautiful. It's a, an absolutely beautiful place to be, you know, and Irish people usually are not, you know, their, their fear of, you know, something different and it's just helping them understand that. Do you know what I mean? And, and looking into possible ways of more dialogue when we all get vaccinated. You know, we, we, we worked an awful lot on that. And it was really working before COVID. We were having an awful lot of uh, interfaith dialogues and bringing different religions and different cultures together and sitting down and talking and understanding and respecting each other's views. So I suppose dialogue is the way forward. Expanding is the way forward. But um. Before I go, I really, really, really want to thank the Irish uh, community. They have been amazing in the support that they've given Muslim Sisters of Era, especially over the past, say, two years to maybe the like really in the past year, um, the donations that there has been coming through our PayPal and our donate button on Facebook has been amazing. And we really feel humbled and honoured. And um, I'm very proud to call myself Irish because, you know, it, it, it took 11 years, but it's acceptance and validation. So, yeah. 
And and just do, before you go, because you're mentioning gratitude and thank yous, you mentioned Tesco there and of the various people who, you know, without whom you wouldn't be able to exist. Can you tell me a few of the organisations that you're really grateful to? Well, Food Cloud is one of them. Food Cloud is a big uh, organisation and they collect all um, ambience food and like food that's near its expiry date, that hasn't expired, still has a couple of weeks. And then they distribute it to different charities and different food banks and um, we're linked in with them. So I, like we would collect today, Thursday, I would have about seven different Tesco's to collect from. Yesterday, little Aldi and done stores. So all that food all goes to Friday night and to hampers as well. But I have to be honest with you, Tesco's have went out and above beyond. They've been fabulous. They We recently bought a new van and in total, they would have donated about 5,000 towards that van. And, um, you know, they've really been good to us, Tesco, amazing support. A lot of restaurants as well, um, because recently we changed over from just Everyday Joe Soap Supron to a registered HSC Supron. So we can't just accept someone coming in with a tray of lasagna. Everything has to be above board with the HSC. So a lot of restaurants have come on board. There's a sack of food, um, the Golden Olive Tree Restaurant, which is situated in Clonsky, but it's an independent restaurant in, in ICCI, have been amazing support. Um, we've had Passion for Food, Barbecue Tonight. We've had a lot of really good support there it's great well listen um we just want to thank you all very much for what you're doing because uh, i think you've become a little little stars in this pandemic really people i mean i I, when i go past o'connell street and i see is all there on a friday it's just it warms your heart you know to think of what you're doing but i also love that it helps the muslim community in ireland too so it's doing it's working on so many different layers and i think that's what's really beautiful about it I think it is, but not, let's not forget there's soup runs out every night of the week as well. You know, it's a, we, we can't just claim fameability for this. There are other soup runs out that are doing amazing work as well. I suppose theirs is different because it's Muslim women and it's, you know, it's a, a combination of a lot of things within it, breaking the stereotype and the connection and so forth and so on. It's really nice to share the love. Like you say, lots of good people doing brilliant things all over the place um, and you are definitely one of them. So Lorraine and Sabina, uh, thank you very much. Well, that's all we have time for. I really enjoyed that conversation. That was Lorraine O'Connor and Sabina Saeed there, and they're both fantastic women. And like they said, absolutely anybody can volunteer for the Muslim Sisters of Era. You don't need to be a Muslim. So if you are listening and you're a non-Muslim or whether you're listening and you're a Muslim, do contact them if you want to be part of it. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.